Welcome to The Joe Cohen Show. Join me as I share my experience with biohacking and invite top health experts to explore the latest technology, supplements, research, and resources for optimizing your body and brain. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Stacy Sims, a PhD. She's a forward-thinking international exercise physiologist and nutritional scientist who aims to revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. She has directed research programs at Stanford and many other universities focusing on female athlete health and performance and pushing the dogma to improve research on all women. She had, did her tenure during Stanford. She had the opportunity to translate earlier research into consumer products in a science-based layperson's book, Roar, written to explain sex differences in training and nutrition across the lifespan. She's won a bunch of different awards and she's, you know, had a TEDx talks and a bunch of other great things here, 70 peer reviewed papers. I'm not going to go through her whole bio, but suffice to say the reason why I brought her on is because she seemed to know a lot about the differences in how men and women should be training or eat based on the sex differences, their hormonal differences. And I think that's a topic that comes up a lot in terms of, you know, there's a lot of people who give general advice, yet it's very interesting to know what is more applicable to women, what is more applicable to men, and where those differences come about. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast today, Stacey. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. So let's get started. The first question I usually like to ask people is how they got into health, because that kind of sets a certain tone and a certain understanding of the field of a person's perspective. Gosh, how did I get into health? I think it stems from going to high school in San Francisco and getting wrapped up in, oh, I shouldn't say wrapped up, but it was the early days of the sustainable bubble and understanding where your food came from. And then when you're mm. driving down the five to LA, you smell the feedlots and you're like, surely that is not good for you. So really started digging into what kinds of things to eat to stay healthy and support training because I was running during high school as well. And I think that was the the big cornerstone really is understanding like how the food that you eat can affect you and where does that food come from? And now it's everywhere, right? It's a sustainability bubble, but this was way back in the day. All right. Awesome. So you grew up in California, San Francisco, very health conscious place. And you got a PhD in exercise physiology or related field, correct? Yep. Yep. I did that down okay. in Dunedin in New Zealand. Awesome. And you're in New Zealand right now? Yes. Yes. Okay. And what made you want to live in New Zealand, just out of curiosity? So when... The opportunity came up. I was 26 and single living in the, in San Francisco and I was hosting some professional triathletes and they're like, Hey, San Francisco looks just like Wellington. And a job came up at the time and I was like, Oh, you know what? I'm 26, single, no attachments, might as well go. So I came down here for two years and ended up staying initially for almost 10. Uh, and then moved back to California, was there for almost 10 years. And then we just recently moved back. So my husband's a Kiwi, and he always wanted to be back in a smaller country to raise our daughter. Mm, interesting. Okay. And you enjoy New Zealand more than, let's say, San Francisco? Mm, truthfully, no. 
<laughs> okay. I know. New Zealand has this like New Zealand has this big like picture of being so perfect and green and sustainable. But when you live here, it's hard. It's really expensive. It's so far away from everything. Granted, I don't have to worry about my kid being shot when she goes to school, but you know, there are definitely some okay. downsides. Interesting. Okay. It seems like everybody in New Zealand is, is just happy being there, but I guess not. Yeah. No. There's a lot of us that okay. aren't, but we're kind of like, mm, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's some benefits, right? Are people healthier there or not really? No. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> it just looks like green. I'm like, you would assume. No, no, no. It looks green and sustainable, but then you get here, you're like, hmm, no, not so much. Wintertime, okay. there's like coal burning and, you know, Fast food is cheaper than real food. And yeah, there's a lot of things. Okay, interesting. So let's dive into women's nutrition. I mean, you've been researching this field a long time. So what I'm curious about is th there's two different topics. I think exercise and nutrition, diet, those are two different topics where men and women may differ. Yeah. What do you think the biggest differences for men and women are with regard to nutrition? We'll start there. Well, for one, there's metabolic differences between like how people use carbohydrate and fat. So when we're looking at women, women preferentially use blood sugar first and then tap into fatty acids. Or men will go through blood sugar and liver muscle glycogen and then fatty acids. So this is where the whole idea of, quote, metabolic efficiency, doing fasted training, increasing your ability to burn fat has gotten so much press because it's been done on male data. But when you look at women specifically, their bodies are already at max fatty acid oxidation capacity. One, because of protein differences within the muscle. Two, changes in estrogen and progesterone. And even if people are on oral contraceptive pill or perimenopausal or menopausal, they're still, their body is more endurant and capable of burning fat. So we look specifically right there at the first thing where we're looking at what are sex differences is that that fueling capability during exercise, which then feeds forward to like guidelines for exercise energy intake, guidelines for post-exercise fueling. So it's, yeah, it's that misstep right there, one of the first things that then expands out to so many different concepts that are still a miss for women. Interesting. So let's, I mean, one of my preconceptions are that men do better with fasting than women, right? I just, Absolutely. today I, I heard, you know, I, I told somebody that I, you know, I, I have a 10 hour eating window and she's like, seriously, I'm, I eat every two hours. I'm like, maybe you eat a lot of carbs. She's like, no, not really. I mean, but it, it, that kind of shows you the difference. Whereas like most men I know don't have a problem with that. Whereas I think women would. So yeah. how does that relate to you know, the, the changes based on what you were saying? Well, if we go to the hypothalamus itself, there's two areas of kisspeptin neuron expression for women. And kisspeptin is responsible for appetite control and understanding nutrient density, also involved in endocrine health, right? So it, it is the main area that, that controls your gonadotropin hormones. Men have one area. So when we're looking just at the basics of nutrient, nutrient intake and understanding, if we look at baseline calorie intake, men, before they start seeing endocrine dysfunction, so lower testosterone and performance difficulties, 
their threshold is around 15 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. Women start seeing that dysfunction at 30. So right there, when we're looking at fasting and the way that the hypothalamus is understanding nutrient density, women need more food coming in on a regular basis in order not to perturb kispeptin. Because when kispeptin is perturbed, then we start to see thyroid dysfunction. After four days of low energy availability, we start to see luteinizing hormone pulse every day. The amplitude shrinks. So then we don't have a luteinizing hormone pulse, which then stops ovulation, which stops menstrual cycle, and we have this cascade of amenorrhea. So we're looking at what or why women, women can't get away with fasting and especially doing exercise in a fasted condition has to do with the way that the hypothalamus is reading, am I in a opportunity of, in, of abundance so that I can take on this stress and I can build and understand the stress? Or am I in an, a time frame where I'm in a catabolic breakdown state? So if women are eating on a regular basis and they are partitioning their calories and bookending the day, the hypothalamus perceives that is low energy availability and a breakdown state. Whereas men, they don't have it because their threshold is, is you know, half of what women's, women's threshold is when they start to have that perturbance. Okay, so let's go through some of the more of the practicalities for that. You know, is there any difference between how many carbs men and women need or that are optimal for men and women? Optimal. So that changes across the lifespan for women because of the expression of estrogen progesterone at puberty and your reproductive years. And then when you get into perimenopause and then postmenopause. So Mm. when we're looking at estrogen progesterone, they directly affect glucose homeostasis and how your body responds to carbohydrate. And that changes across the menstrual cycle. We see changes in insulin sensitivity across the menstrual cycle. So when progesterone and estrogen come up, we have more insulin insensitivity or resistance. We see a lot of that occurring in pre-diabetic. And then as we get into perimenopause, so your late 40s, early 50s, you start having a change in the ratios of estrogen progesterone. There is a an insulin resistant factor that comes in across the entire menstrual cycle. And that holds until postmenopause when insulin resistance starts to have a, a, a new normal. So then carbohydrate is not as detrimental when you get into postmenopause as it is in perimenopause. For men, you don't have that, that switch because men age in more of a linear fashion and they don't have estrogen progesterone that affect blood glucose and glucose homeostasis like women do. So if we were to say a baseline set point for carbs, again, men can get away with a lot lower amount of carbohydrate. And a lot of men do this so that they can get into more fat burning and and metabolic flexibility. But when women start to drop too low, again, that perturbs and we start to see a lot of endocrine dysfunction, poor sleep quality, problems with glucose homeostasis. And so when we're talking about baseline amount of carbohydrate, it's a little bit individual, but women do need more carbohydrate than men do. As an overall, uh, as an overall statement, just in general, you're saying, but that level will also change over time. So is that getting, as they, uh, in menopause, I I didn't quite catch exactly, do they need more or less carbs? They need more than what they had when they were in perimenopause, but the type changes. So we see a lot of incidences of gut microbiome changes in the 
about the five years before the onset of menopause. So this is where we're looking at, hey, okay, we need to really increase the diversity of fruit and veg to keep that gut microbiome from changing so much. And then when we get into postmenopause, this is where you can start adding back in a little bit less of the complex in fruit and veg, and you can go back to having some bread and stuff. Okay. What, what, why is the microbiome changing or getting worse in the perimenopause? So if we look at the metabolism of our sex hormones, we have a hepatic pass first off. So when your sex hormones are first released, they go to the liver and they're bound up by sex hormone binding globulin and then excreted in the bile into the intestines. And the gut bugs unbind it and shoot it back into circulation. When you get into perimenopause and you're having a change in the ratio of estrogen progesterone, a lot of anovulatory cycles, you have a change in your receptor sensitivity because you're not producing as much of those hormones and you don't have as much being excreted into the bile. So you start to lose the diversity of those gut bugs because you don't need as much to unbind those hormones. So we start to mm -hmm. see this shift in decrease in diversity. And this is part of the reason why we start to see an increase in that visceral abdominal fat in women and decrease in our lean mass part of the hormone changing, but also we know because of this gut microbiome shift that happens. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. And okay. So the gut microbiome shifts, they should eat a more diverse diet of fruit and vegetables to counteract that. Yep. And when they get to many menopause, it gets better, the gut microbiome? It does. Yep. Okay. We see a change in early versus post are early postmenopause versus late postmenopause. So early postmenopause is about the five years after that one point in time. And there's still some significant changes that are happening, but we see the diversity of the gut microbiome is starting to come back. We see a better amount of blood glucose control. And then when we get into the later years of postmenopause, so, you know, eight years beyond that one point in time of menopause, things start to even out in a new baseline, primarily because now all of your estrogen receptors have become used to not having estrogen and your body has mm. this new baseline. You want to hear about the one health hack that is sure to change your life? Okay, here it is. Subscribing to this podcast. 67% of listeners aren't following the show, so please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free. Click the subscribe button now and enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, and are you in support of estrogen replacement therapy in menopause for women? So, yes and no. I say that because <laughs> right now there's this conversation that every woman should go on hormone replacement therapy or menopause hormone therapy. But they're... What's not in that conversation is how you can alter exercise and nutrition to help support these changes. I, I know and I believe that menopause hormone therapy is useful for so many women who are having significant symptoms of vasomotor symptoms, night sweats, anxiety, depression, all of these things that affect daily life. But I'm not on board with using menopause hormone therapy just for body recomposition. Because mm. one, we know that it's not that effective. It slows the rate of change, but it's not a treatment for these changes. 
And unfortunately, that conversation isn't had. That's not out there. So I look at menopause hormone therapy as a therapy, just the same as someone who might need to use SSRIs or antidepressant medications, right? It's a therapy to be used in conjunction with other things. But that's the piece that's missing in the general conversation. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So let's go through what happens during menstruation and how the the diet or the exercise physiology should change during that time. Yeah. So we could start from each stage, right? Yeah. So for a brief overview for your listeners, I'll just give the textbook idea of what the phases are. So we say day one is the first day of bleeding. And around day seven is what we call the mid-follicular phase and estrogen starts to come up. Around day 13 or 14 is ovulation. So we call that the ovulatory phase. After that, progesterone and estrogen come up. And that's the early luteal phase. Around day 21, 22 is mid-luteal. And then day 28 is the last day of the luteal phase. So we look at it as a 28-day cycle, knowing that women usually vary. And the real cycle is between 25 and 40 days. And it's that low hormone or that follicular phase that changes. So we look across the board of how the body responds to changes in hormones. When we're looking at that low hormone follicular phase, this is where we say women are, quote, more like men, where they can access carbohydrate better. They will tap into the liver and their muscle glycogen. They have a lower core body temperature. They have the ability to hit higher intensities and recover better from it. They is don't that have, day seven, by the way? This is day one through about day 13. Oh, okay. So th that yeah. includes menstruation, the follicular yes. phase. Yes, it okay, does. Okay, got yeah. it. When those hormones drop. And women can get away. I shouldn't say really get away, but they can get away with a little bit more with regards to not paying that close attention to their nutrition in the low hormone phase because the body is stress resilient. And it's becoming like even from an immune perspective, it's really good at fighting off virus and bacteria during that phase because the whole idea is to make the body really, really resilient to mature an egg, to have a really fantastic environment for, for fertilizing this egg. We have a dip in estrogen. But quick right? question. Yeah. yeah, quick question. If there's a dip in estrogen, why are there all these benefits occurring? So when we're looking at estrogen in itself, so estrogen in the low hormone phase is lower than what it is in the high hormone phase, but it's not flatlined. And when estrogen is by itself, it's anabolic for women. So estrogen by itself is women's testosterone. So this is, you know, we, this is another reason why we have a lower core temperature. We have better sleep patterns. We can access carbohydrate because we don't have progesterone countering or being greater than estrogen. So after ovulation, when progesterone comes up, progesterone is responsible for a lot of the differences and perturbances that we see in metabolism and sleep and autonomic nervous system control. So after ovulation, you have estrogen that has fallen off after ovulation and then starts to come up again. And then the corpus luteum that held that egg degrades and becomes or releases progesterone. So progesterone starts to come up. And we see a peak of progesterone around day 23. So this is your mid-luteal phase. And it holds that peak until it drops off. Okay. So there's, yeah. a, there's two peaks of progesterone. It starts to go up in ovulation, goes down a bit, and then goes up. 
again? In... No. So there's two peaks okay. in estrogen. There's an estrogen oh, okay. surge right before ovulation. And after okay. that surge, it drops down a little bit and then it comes up. But progesterone is produced after ovulation. So after ovulation, okay. progesterone starts to rise. Okay. So what progesterone does is it increases protein catabolism because its job for the most part is to provide the building blocks to build this lush endometrial lining. So it shuttles carbohydrate away from the liver and the muscle to put into the endometrial lining. The endometrium is really, really thick with glycogen storage. We see that, you know, breakdown of lean mass. We see the circulation of amino acids that all get shuttled in to build this tissue. Progesterone also decreases vagal tone. So we see an increase in sympathetic drive. We see an increase in our respiratory rate, our resting heart rate. We see a perturbance in our neurotransmitters. So it's, it's harder to get into really good REM sleep and slow wave sleep. And it has to do with how much progesterone is affecting every system in the body. From a nutrition standpoint, if we're going to do intensity during this time frame, we need to supply additional carbohydrate. So we need to have more carbohydrate in our diet. And if we're going to be doing a heavy training session, we need to supply carbohydrate during that training session. Again, because progesterone is taking everything and trying to build this endometrial lining. So also protein though, right? Yep, definitely protein. Okay. But when we're looking at yeah. like exercise intensities and exercise itself, more, more carbohydrate. Overall, we need around 12% more protein in our diet when we are in this high hormone phase because of the catabolic effects of progesterone and the shuttling of these amino acids to build this tissue. So when we're looking at dietary changes, women are like, hey, that means that I need to eat more. Yes, because your metabolism is also elevated because your body is in this building phase. So it's using a lot of energy to build this tissue. And then when we get to about three days before the next period starts, there's this massive inflammatory response that stimulates that tissue to be shed if, it, if there is not an implanted egg. So then you have this massive inflammatory response, which causes a lot of the PMS symptoms. It causes changes in mood. It changes in anxiety, changes in energy levels and the capability to actually push and go hard. Hmm. Okay. So my understanding, I guess maybe it was a little different, was the mood changes were as a result of lower estrogen. You're saying it seems to be a result of just inflammation. So mood changes and neurotransmitter changes are directly affected by estrogen and inflammation. So what happens when you have the estrogen peak before ovulation and then as estrogen comes up, it hypersensitizes your serotonin receptors. So you have more serotonin receptor density. You have more receptors that are, are stimulated because estrogen is doing that. So when estrogen drops off, you still have this hypersensitivity of serotonin, but you don't mm -hmm. have the serotonin coming in per se. So this is what causes the depression and the anxiety. The same with progesterone creating more catabolic effects in amino acid circulation is you also end up having more tryptophan crossing. So because serotonin is produced in the brain, but you also crossing have where? blood brain barrier. So more tryptophan is crossing the blood-brain barrier? And less leucine because leucine is being used to build that tissue. 
Oh, I see. So it's breaking down protein, but it's not using all the protein. It's mainly using the leucine. Yep. Building blocks. Yeah. So Got this it. is and why you have the neurotransmitter changes in the serotonin effects. So it's kind of both of the hormones that are affecting the neurotransmitters. One is sensitivity and one is the amount of serotonin. And when you start to have both of those hormones drop off, the brain is still like, hey, wait a second, what's going on? And this is why we see a lot of people or a lot of women who have really bad PMS or PPMD, which is, you know, severe mood changes with premenstrual syndrome. It's because it's akin to having a serotonin dump when we look at mental okay. health aspects. So I think, I think this is the clearest I've ever been explained this issue. And I'm, I'm kind of just getting new, getting into it just recently. But I, I want to kind of go back and, and go a little, see if I under, what I understood correctly. So estrogen goes up in ovulation, mm -hmm. and it sensitizes the serotonin receptors, which makes people's mood better because they're, they're, the same amount of serotonin is going to have a bigger impact. Yeah. Then the estrogen drops down after ovulation, mm -hmm. and at the same time, there's going to be a higher inflammatory response in order to build the endometrium tissue. And so there's more inflammation, there's less estrogen. So the, the lower estrogen, you mentioned that the, 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 for a couple of days, it's still going to be sensitive, the receptors, to some degree, but then I assume it's going to drop off. So the sensitivity goes down. Yeah. yeah, estrogen starts to come up again after ovulation. But the mm. fact of the matter is in progesterone counters estrogen. So then we start to have the progesterone effects on the neurotransmitters as well. Okay, okay. So it's, it really isn't related to estrogen as in, in terms of estrogen making it worse because the estrogen is, is actually higher during those phases. It's going up after the ovulation phase, close to the menstruation. Mm -hmm. And so the sensitivity of the serotonin receptors are higher. And the tryptophan is also higher as there's, and, and therefore serotonin itself should theoretically mm -hmm. also be higher. Yep. So you have higher serotonin, higher serotonin sensitivity, but which, but that's when the mood is actually worse of a woman, right? So the mood becomes really the contention point around five-ish days before the next period starts. When you have the peak of progesterone and estrogen, and then they start to come down. So it isn't like the hormones are peaked and they stay that way all the way to the first day of bleeding. What happens is you have the peak and then they start to come down in those few days before for the first day of bleeding. And as they come down, it's another massive inflammatory response to get rid of the, of the lining. So if we're looking at mood and mood changes, you have a really fantastic, like, boom, ready to go, really aggressive, lots of, of feel-good effects right before ovulation. And then it stabilizes. And then we start to see this worsening of mood around that five days before the next period starts because of the drop-off of these hormones. Okay, so it's the drop off of estrogen, which is causing, right, and progesterone is causing lower sensitivity to serotonin again, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Where is tryptophan during this stage? So then it starts to decrease as well because the progesterone actions are are decreasing. Okay, so progesterone is what's causing these catabolic and building tissue building properties, and so yep. as estrogen. It's this drop-off where estrogen and progesterone are protecting a woman's mood. 
right? Yep. yep. They drop off and there's still some residual, there's, there's still some inflammation there as yes. the, the, that's when the inflammation is highest as the, the immune system is trying to break down this tissue, right? And okay. after ovulation, again, there is a switch in the immune system where there's more of a pro-inflammatory response because it doesn't want to have the ability to like, kill off sperm that's coming in. So mm. you have pro-inflammatory response for immune system and then a greater inflammatory response to get rid of the tissue. So it's like a twofold response from the inflammatory aspect. Okay. Why would it be a greater, you're saying it's a greater inflammatory response because it wants the sperm to enter or does it? So if you're looking at the low hormone phase and we have a greater ability to fight off virus and bacteria, and then after ovulation from a survival standpoint, the immune system's like, well, I don't want to fight off every foreign thing that's coming in from regards to pathogen, which sperm could possibly be perceived as. So it invokes more of a fever response to kill things off, but sperm is not that receptive to a fever ah, response. Okay. So, okay. I'm understanding this better now. So there's kind of, there's really four main factors as you see it. And as I understand it, there's a general pro-inflammatory response where the, the, the immune system is kicking in like, you know, things that are the less healthy type of immunity, right? The, the, the emergent, yeah. more of the emergency break immunity that is not affecting sperm, but, you know, it might cause fever or something like that. Yep. And more, more like the cytokines pretty much, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And, and then on the other hand, it's also just generally elevating the immune system to break down these 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 tissues that it wants mm -hmm. to break down. Yep. And then at the same time estrogen is going down which includes the sensitivity to the serotonin receptors and then the progesterone goes down which it's reducing tryptophan and just based on my previous knowledge also GABA. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that's like, I guess that's like five, but it's basically immune related, Im immune mm -hmm. inflammation, neurotransmitters, which is serotonin, lower serotonin, lower GABA. That's what it comes yes. down to. Mm -hmm. Okay. You, you seem to say that before that there, there were some negatives to progesterone. Did I understand that? It was, yeah. it was stealing these resources to build the tissues, yet it's also positive. So what are the, the positives and negatives to progesterone? When I hear progesterone, it's interesting because I hear it sometimes in a positive light, sometimes in a negative light. How do women think about, should, how, how should they think about progesterone? It depends on the goal, right? So if you're someone who's just, okay, going through life, progesterone is great because it does affect mood. It is responsible for keeping you healthy for the most part, because we're seeing like this, if you don't have progesterone, you don't really have this build of endometrial tissue. You don't have a, a proper menstrual cycle. So you have endocrine dysfunction. But when we're talking about it from an exercise standpoint, and we're looking at what are my goals? How am I going to hit intensities? How am I going to recover? This is where progesterone has more of that negative light. Because if we're looking at trying to have greater heat tolerance, so women have a decrease in the amount of heat tolerance they have and the fact that they can 
they have a higher heat load per workload than men. And progesterone drives core temperature up by about 0.5 degrees C when it when it comes out. So you have a shorter time to fatigue because of of the heat. Women, I feel like, are generally more colder than men. I don't know if it's yeah. just like stereotype or whatnot. <laughs> Women are always cold, like, oh, I'm freezing. Right. Yeah. So, but it, but it seemed like I, I was just understanding it the higher heat, meaning like they, they get warmer. So, it, or yeah. they're getting colder. So, what's happening? Yeah. So, the, the, if we're talking about women like in an office, right? And it's always said at 20 degrees C as a, the general room temperature. So, women perceive that as being cold because their cutaneous vasodilation set points are different than men. So we're seeing like there's a, a difference in the amount of core to shell gradient, right? So men can produce more heat, stay warmer, primarily because they have more lean mass and metabolically active tissue. But there's also the mm. sex difference in our set point of thermal neutral. When we get into exercise and we see exercise heat capacity. So when you exercise, you increase the amount of heat that you are storing and trying to get rid of because of your contractile muscle tissue, right? So every time you do a muscle contraction, you're using fuel, you're breaking down the fuel and you're releasing heat. So when we look at heat tolerance per unit of workload between men and women, women store more heat and they accumulate more heat and they have a different means of dissipating the heat than men. So women first vasodilate and try to get rid of the heat through just that, you know, conduction where it's like, okay, we're pushing all the hot blood to the skin and the wind and, and touching things is going to get rid of it. Men don't do that as much. They have a very short time for vasodilation and then they start sweating. But women don't sweat as soon as men and they hold on to more heat. So their tipping point for sweating is a higher internal temperature than men as well. So when we're looking at heat tolerance and the way that women can handle heat during exercise, it's different than men. So women, because they are doing more vasodilation, they have a greater internal temperature before they start sweating, they actually do better in hot and humid conditions than men because men rely more on sweating. So when we get into the high hormone phase where progesterone is increasing that core temperature, women's time to fatigue is shorter because they already have a higher core temperature. So their ability to hold on to heat is not as great because first it's driving the core temperature up to a set point before they start sweating. But because the core temperature is already up, they're holding on to heat. Their sweating hold changes. So it might start earlier but their capacity to offload more heat through sweat is different than men. So it becomes a, a little bit of a thermoregulation challenge when progesterone is elevated. As I'm, as I'm understanding it, there's, 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 there's benefits to how women can tolerate heat. And they, they, both men and women obviously are dissipating heat, but they do it in different yeah. ways. So men are doing yes. it more through sweating. Women yes. are doing it more through vasodilation. That's, yes. That's, that's what I understood. And when you do it more through vasodilation, that actually helps you tolerate heat better because men are only going to tolerate it after they start sweating. 
whereas women don't have to sweat. They, they can sweat later. It'll have to be hotter in order for them to sweat. Their internal temperature has to be higher than men's in order to stimulate right. the sweating. Yeah. Right. Because they handle it on a, they don't have to, they, they have better vasodilation and that helps them. I, I, mean, I guess that's interesting if we want to think about it. I know, I know this girl that whenever she runs, she, uh, her, her face looks red. And so yeah. uh, I, that makes me think of like better vasodilation, <laughs> you know, the woman, yeah. better vasodilation. There you go. And there are a lot of women who go, I don't sweat. I was like, you do. But first you do this vasodilation. That's what you term beet red. And women are like, I don't sweat as much as my husband does. And like, well, yeah, I know because men start sweating sooner and they have more active sweat glands. So their sweat rate is also higher. So we have a difference in our thermoregulation. So in some regards, it's better. And in other regards, maybe not so much. Right. And I, I think I, I know, uh, you know, I know some men with hyperhidrosis, which is uh, yeah. it, it's excess sweating. I've known I don't I haven't I don't think I've ever met women with hyperhidrosis. So yeah, that, that's an interesting also thing that shows that men, men sweat more. They're more predisposed yep. to that than women. OK, yeah. so that's interesting. So how does how does the the so how does that relate to. For example, the ability to tolerate cold because men are, you mentioning that when they're, the men are naturally have more muscle mass, right? And so they're, mm -hmm. that's how they, they also not, not only through sweating, but they're also burning it through the muscle mass. And so when they're, if they have more muscle mass, they're able to regulate their temperature. They're able to burn more energy and be warmer. Does the vasodilation, I guess it, if if a woman is vasodilating better, doesn't that make her become warmer? So we look at cold tolerance. There's a gradient difference for what's tolerable to men versus tolerable for women. And we see this also in like cold water immersion where women have a, a stronger vasal response if their face gets in the cold water and a stronger shock response because they're used to vasodilating for temperature control. And then they have this severe vasoconstriction which causes us panic. So if we're looking mm. at cold tolerance, women will go out for like a run in the middle of winter and have gloves on and a hat on, and they might come back and not be sweaty because they've been able to thermoregulate more through that vasoconstriction, vasodilation property than the actual sweat. And a man will come back with his gloves off and his hat off and dripping wet with sweat, right? That's for sure, right, it's, yeah. It's a gradient difference. And then, again, when we look at, like, cold water immersion, you have all these ice baths and let's get into this four-degree C water. Women get in there and they have this immediate constriction response and they don't get the same benefits as men from cold water immersion because it's too oh, that's cold. interesting. Wow, It's okay. too cold. So for women, the cold water for proper like health benefits should really be around 14 degrees C because then that invokes the responses that we want without overshocking the body. Right. So that would be like go into the Mediterranean Sea rather than the, uh, you know, the fjords. The Arctic. In, in, yeah. In the Arctic yeah. or yeah. The Wim Hof or wherever he is in Iceland. Yeah, you know? exactly. That's interesting. Okay. And what about saunas? How should this so saunas, saunas, yeah. So saunas are fantastic. 
We do see a sex difference also in the climatization to the heat of the sauna, right? So we know that it'll take nine sessions in a row for a woman to get the same benefits as men have five sessions in a row. And this is primarily because of that core temperature difference between menstrual cycle phases. So it takes longer for the body to have those shifts in cardiovascular responses and heat shock protein responses because the woman's body is already used to having this 0.5-ish degree change. So mm. when we're looking at sauna exposure, it's all about driving the core temperature up to create this heat response. But women's bodies are so used to an internal temperature shift that it takes more exposure for them to get the same kind of benefit that men have. Interesting. And, and what about, what if they just turn the temperature higher? Still the same thing. Okay. It's just they have less tolerance to stay in there for a longer period of time. Okay. Are there the same benefits for cold in, for men and women? It's just that they have to do different temperatures? When we look at kind of the health benefits between cold and heat, women do better in the heat. So better women should are more likely to do better with saunas than cold immersion. Than cold water. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah, you I don't I don't know that many women that are that big into cold immersions. It's more like men usually. And I know. it could well, be just here, that they're they, they they you know, people will have some kind of intuition about their bodies and it's just you Yeah. Know, yeah. They, they here just, the sea temperature is variable. And they often have a lot of open water swim races and stuff. And there's so many times where the women will dive in to the ocean and it's 20 degrees, which isn't that cold, but it is cold enough for them to have that vagal response where they have that immediate panic, that cold shock. And then they have such a parasympathetic drive, they actually can't get their core temperature or, or can't get their heart rate up and they can't actually swim. But it doesn't oh, happen wow. with men. Men dive in and like, oh, it's fresh, but they keep going. They don't have the same vagal response. Okay. So do you do any cold dips for health or you skip that? I have a sauna in my house. I prefer, okay. but I do open water swimming. And because I get cold so easily, the 20 degrees in the ocean actually does trigger me to have the same responses as if I was doing a cold water plunge. Because okay. it is wow. cold. It's that. That, yeah. What do you think is in terms of supplements for men versus women? What if, if you were a woman, you wouldn't take X if you are a woman, but if, if yeah. for a woman, you wouldn't recommend X or for a man, you wouldn't recommend something that women should take. What, what kind of supplemental differences do you see? Well, if we look at supplement research, especially like sports supplementation, and we're looking at beet juice, we're looking at beta alanine, we're looking at what are some of the other ones? Creatine? No, creatine is actually really good for women. And okay. we see this because women have 70 to 80% of the stores that men have. Some of it is because they don't eat as much and they don't have as much creatine sources coming in, but also storage capacity. And we know that Three to five grams daily dose for women is almost essential for brain health and then also muscular performance. You don't have to load it, but having that low dose of three to five grams a day, we see like in clinical trials, it helps get out of depressive symptoms, reduces anxiety. And this is against SSRIs. 
it has to do again with the the fast metabolism and what are your fast bioenergetics in the body. Also see it helps with gut health. So a lot of women have greater incidences of IBS, GI distress when they're exercising. And so if they're taking this three to five grams of creatine, it helps increase that mucosal lining and helps with gut health. Now for men, the creatine is all about the muscle performance, right? So it's overloading or saturating. We look again, like at nitrates. So a lot of people are like, oh, let's use beet juice. Let's use nitrates. For premenopausal women, it has a detriment to exercise performance. Again, because women have this capacity to vasodilate and they don't need to have that vasodilatory effect. And estrogen directly affects the endothelial tissue and the nitric oxide responses. Postmenopausal women, though, using nitrates and beet juice has fantastic results with regards to heat dissipation, reducing hot flashes for women who are in early postmenopause. So we're looking again at that at that time difference. The other one that people kind of get into, which is interesting for women, is iron, right? So we hear a lot of female athletes or women in general who sit on the low end of normal of iron, but their physician's like, oh, you're still in the normal range. We're not going to do anything. But there's a, a menstrual cycle phase and a circadian rhythm phase effect of hepcidin. So hepcidin, we know, is the hormone that reduces iron absorption. It's elevated three to six hours after training. And for women, because we bleed for five to seven days at the beginning of our menstrual cycle, this suppresses hepcidin. Estrogen suppresses hepcidin. After ovulation, we have that switch into a pro-inflammatory immune response. We have progesterone that supersedes estrogen. So we have hepcidin that comes up. So for women who sit on the low end of normal for iron, we say, you know what? We want to boost you into the middle bit of the range. We need to increase your body's ability to absorb iron. So we start supplementing every other day, the first day of bleeding, and then stop at ovulation. And this encourages so the body to absorb it and actually use it. Okay. So you, iron is lowest for women. At, is that during menstruation? Yeah, there's some iron losses for sure during menstruation, but it's not as big as people think. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate yeah. it. If you can tell people where they can find you, find more information or anything you want to promote, your book or anything like that, please yeah. do so. So social Instagram, Dr. Stacy Sims, and then our website, drstacysims.com, DR for the doctor, has a list of all the stuff that we're up to, our courses, where to get our books, the conferences I'm going to, when I'm speaking on at the conferences, links to the peer reviews, links to our free newsletter and blogs. So if you want to find out all the ins and outs, then visit some of those sites. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Awesome. Have okay. a great day. Yeah, you too. Enjoy Bye. New Zealand. Oh. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> See ya. 67% of listeners aren't following the show, so please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free.